Friday greetings to each and every last one of you, and a big thank you to those of you who are supporting Into the Word financially. We couldn't do this without your assistance. And so if there's anyone else out there that would like to assist, uh, just write down the contact information you'll hear at the end of the program today, and then you can send your one-time or ongoing gift of any amount to that address, and it will be applied to the radio broadcast fees. Thanks. Now, typically on Friday, I also urge you to be part of a local congregation, which I'm going to do. But we're also going to go ahead and start our study today because I want to revisit the last thing that we talked about last episode. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse number 24. The problem that is being addressed by the author of Hebrews is that some apparently Jewish believers in Jesus, when they were looking at the persecution, some of it very lethal, of Christians in Rome and in Italy, they had thought that maybe, just maybe, what they needed to do was back away from their Christianity, away from their connection to Jesus, and fall back into Judaism, back into their Jewishness. And uh, the author has been making it very clear you can't do that. That's not appropriate. It's not even possible because the Old Covenant was preparing for the New Covenant. And in the midst of this climactic spot in the book of Hebrews, he addresses the issue of church attendance, if you will. And this is how he tackles it. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. So one of the reasons for getting together as believers is so that we can encourage each other to do the right things, to love as God loves, to love even our enemies as ourselves, to be committed to God-like love, and to go out there and do the good works, to basically let our light shine. And then when they see our good works, maybe they'll give glory to God in heaven. So let us, because of Jesus, consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So Knock it off with the avoiding of the assembly, uh, the neglecting of the church gathering. So all of you out there, you need a home church, and you need to get there on a regular basis to worship and fellowship and pray and study and serve together with other believers. That is the command of God. And when you're there, You encourage each other to love and good deeds. And how long will we do this? How long do we need to do church? Well, it says this, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, the day that is being referenced here is the day of Jesus' return. And so as long as Jesus hasn't been back yet, we all need to be in church 
and I'm going to encourage you to do that this Lord's Day that's coming up, okay? And if you happen to be within the driving distance uh, range of Elkhart East and you're looking for a place, please come check us out. Verse number 26. Now, this is, this is actually where we kind of ended last time. If we go on sinning deliberately, now the Jewish idiom, I suppose, for this is to sin with a high hand. The idea being, you know, the raised fist. You're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. And I um, intentionally tried to provoke you into understanding how big of a deal this is by saying it's roughly equivalent to the idea of flipping God off. So, if we go on flipping God off by our lifestyle, if you will, after receiving the knowledge of truth. So, once we've come into contact with Jesus as Lord and Savior, you can't basically say, God, I'm not interested in that. Because there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. You can't go back into Judaism if you're Jewish because Judaism's whole point was the coming of the Messiah and Jesus is that Messiah and he fulfilled everything that that symbolism was pointing toward. He is the substance, that was the shadow. So all of the animal sacrifices were worthless after Jesus died and rose again. Now they kept on being used for a while as the transition was going on for a lot of Jewish folks from Old Covenant to New Covenant. But within a matter of years after this letter is written and sent out, and I think it's probably 65, maybe the earliest part of 66, uh, so in the year 70, the temple complex was totally done away with. And it's never been rebuilt, and I don't have any expectation as a Bible teacher that it will ever be rebuilt. And here's another reason why. It's right here, this book. There is no need for a temple because there's no need for animal sacrifices. In fact, animal sacrifices, having been fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection, if you try to do them again, if you try to fall back into them, you are basically flipping God off. You are basically saying that Jesus' death and resurrection were not sufficient. So that is why I have no expectation for the temple to be rebuilt. Now, some of you are going to go, what, what, but, 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 that, that, that's tied in with eschatology. That's tied in with the second coming of Jesus and, and uh, the Antichrist setting up uh, an image of himself in and rebuilt Jewish temple. Be patient. We'll get to the book of Revelation before too much longer, and I will review why that is a misunderstanding of that idea from the book of Revelation uh, and uh, its use of some things from 2 Thessalonians. Be patient. We'll get to it. Verse number 26, again. If we go on sinning deliberately with a high hand after receiving the knowledge of truth, there is, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So if you don't take up God's offer of salvation, then all that's left is judgment. All that's left is facing 
his wrath. Verse 28, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's the reality of the Mosaic Code. Two or three witnesses agree in a testimony against a person on capital crime, and they can be executed. Verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, that he has thrown Jesus under the bus, tossed him off to the side, denied him, or quit confessing him? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Profaning is to treat as unholy. So to throw Jesus under the bus, to not confess him, to not treat him as the Savior and the Lord that he is, is to treat him as something unclean, unholy. And God the Father is not going to stand for that. And by the way, the Holy Spirit gets kind of bent out of shape over that as well. Uh, We are to have God's Holy Spirit living inside of us. If we insult Jesus... Why would the Holy Spirit want to stick around? Verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now, the original quote of this comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 35, where Moses is wrapping up his final address to the Israeli people, and he wants them to understand that God is the one that will make the final call. He will make the final judgment. Now, Paul, in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 19, grabbed that exact same quote to try to remind Christians, you shouldn't be trying to get even with people. You're supposed to be leaving that to God, ultimately, and honestly, uh, since it's there in Romans chapter 12, uh, you need to leave it to the government, chapter 13. Uh, If it's something local, something that is temporal, something that is part of this world system, uh, we don't go around getting even as Christians. We let God's own justice system take care of that. And he will. And again, here's another quote. The Lord will judge his people, Deuteronomy 32, 36. Uh, He is the one that will make the determination as to what will happen to anyone who blows off Jesus, who throws him under the bus, who ditches him, who refuses to confess him anymore. But here is the standing warning, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, there's a lot of powerful people out there that you don't want to slight. You wouldn't want to get them on your bad side. Well, God, the creator of heaven and earth, is the ultimate powerful entity. 
that you don't want to get on the bad side of. That's the reality of it. Verse 32, which this section helps us to understand a little bit more about the people to which this letter is written and their situation. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, and uh, that should take you back in your head uh, to chapter number 6, verse number 4. Enlightened in the first part of the second century started being a synonym for being immersed, uh, baptized, uh, because that was part and parcel of the whole conversion experience. It was the physical outside demonstration of the internal process. Uh, And so when he's talking about here about after you were enlightened, he's saying after you became a Christian, basically, after you were immersed into the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So think back, he says, to when you first became Christians. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So where these guys are located, when you became a Christian in the last 10, 15, 20 years, apparently, uh, there was a possibility that people would treat you mean. People would be rude. People would say nasty things to you. Or maybe it would happen to a buddy of yours, a friend of yours. They might even lose their job because they became a Christian. Verse number 34, for You had compassion on those in prison. So some of them apparently even ended up being tossed into confinement because they weren't following uh, some rule because they were a Christian. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So apparently some of them had goods confiscated because of their Christianity. But the one thing that you don't see mentioned here is that none of them ended up being killed. And that's going to be important. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So when he's writing to these guys, he is aware that where they're at, where they've been living, they have been persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ but they've never been killed for it. They never faced that as a reality. Now, that's a reality in Rome right now. That's a reality in the major portions of the Italian continent. So they're not on that, they're not in that part of the Roman world. Uh, But his point is, verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. So he is like, you know that sometimes it's been rough being a Christian. You experienced that, or you saw it in other people's lives, and you stuck with it. Well, keep sticking with it, because you know that there's going to be this great reward. Uh, I'm going to quote from the book of Revelation now. Jesus said, if you are faithful even unto death, I will give you the crown of life. So the crown of life is that reward, being welcomed into the eternal presence of God through the work of of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 36, 
for you have need of endurance. That's what the people receiving this letter need more than anything right now. They need the stick They need the ability to bear up underneath what's going to be happening to them and not cave. Just hang in there. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for, and then he gives a little quote here uh, from, uh, I think it's Isaiah, Um, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. Now, who is that about? Obviously, Jesus. But my righteous one shall live by faith. Now, that is uh, definitely something uh, that is um, quoted from the Old Testament about if you're going to make it, you have to believe God. You have to trust God. The righteous people of all eras have gotten through the tough times by their trust, by their faith. Uh, We're in chapter 10. We're coming very close now to chapter number 11, which is the big hero's hall of faith. And so that's what he's introducing here is the idea that faith is what has always gotten God's people through. Yet a little while, the coming one will come, and he will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So that's the money quote right there. That's the warning quote. Uh, Because he knows, this author knows, that at least some people have toyed with the idea of shrinking back away from Jesus, pulling back from him, and thinking they'll still be good with God. And the quote basically says, no, you won't. The righteous one has to live by their trust in God, and if they shrink back from God, if they pull back from God's holy one who is coming, then God is not going to be pleased with him. Verse 39. Here is the positive expectation. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So he's like, yep, that's that's the danger. That's the problem. But I am convicted of better things for us. We're not those that are going to ditch Jesus. We're not those that are going to veer off from Christianity just when things get tough because we're actually the people who have faith in Jesus Christ and expect that he will preserve our souls just as he promised. Which now brings us to chapter number 11. And it starts with a definition of what faith is. And I want to warn you now, There are some silly ideas of faith out there, really weird. Uh, One of them is part of a joke that always gets told, and that is uh, that faith is uh, a a leap into the dark. Or uh, here's the jokey part, 
some kids define uh, faith as, oh, that's believing in something you know ain't true. No, 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 no. Faith is believing in things that there is good evidence is true. And it's not a leap into the dark. It's a leap into the light. So let's read and chew on the definition of faith here at the beginning of chapter number 11 and put, put a rest to all of those nonsense ideas of faith. Verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, I actually like the older language better. The old King James was, faith is the substance. Substance is a nice compound Latin word, which means uh, something standing underneath something else. So, the substance of a bridge are all those pylons underneath it, all those girders underneath the roadbed. That's the substance of the road system that's going over the river. The substance of a chair are those legs underneath it, that configuration that the moment you see it, you have faith this chair should hold me up. So faith is the substance, the assurance of things that are hoped for. So we're hoping for an eternal relationship with God, a hoping for the resurrection. That's the great hope, isn't it? The second coming of Jesus and the, and the bodily resurrection. So faith is the reality that's holding all of that up. And then the next line is the conviction of things not seen. The word for conviction here you'll see in other places that basically represent the compelling evidence for something. Uh, it's when you go into court, uh, all that mountain of evidence that ends up in a conviction, that's this word the convicting evidence of things not seen. And you can think about a trial. Uh, when you got a jury trial going on, basically the prosecuting attorney is piling up all of this evidence about something that none of the jurors saw happen. Now, nowadays we have video evidence that sometimes helps in this, so let's kind of set that off to the side for the purposes here. But you pile up all of this eyewitness testimony, all of these, these records, and uh, then you come to the conviction, yeah, it happened that way, and uh, we can make a judgment on that. So faith is the substance, the underpinning of things we're hoping for in the future, and it's also the convicting evidence of things that we didn't see happen. So faith is not nonsense. Faith is not grounded on, on mythology and, and foolishness. It's grounded on evidence that's been passed down. What we're reading when we read the Scripture is something that is helping establish the substance of our faith 
and the convicting evidence of our faith. Now, let's move on to the illustrative part of the chapter. For by it, that is, by the faith that we're talking about, the people of old received their commendation. So they were complimented over their faith in what God told them was going to happen. Now, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, it goes back to the book of Genesis, where God makes matter as a great big pool of matter first, but there's no form to it. There's nothing you can look at. You can't see it. It's not visible in that sense. It's toho va wohu. It's, um, it's shapeless, it's formless, and void, is, I think, the old King James. Uh, but that matter is then turned around by God and shaped into things we can see, like land and the ocean and the sky and the stars and the sun and the moon and the animals and the plants and the people. That's the substance that we see now, but it was made out of things that we couldn't have seen. So, verse 3 again, it's by faith that we understand that the universe was created. Uh, We look at its current existence, its configuration, and we go, wow, there's design to that. There must be a designer. Verse number 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So Abel had a heart for God, and he gave the best of the things that he was working with, which happened to be animals. Now, his brother didn't do that. His brother, uh, who um, was blessed with the land and was growing plants and crops, he gave second best, third best, uh, whatever level you want to talk about. And it was because of that that he got chewed out by God, warned, if you don't change your attitude, death is going to be coming right behind sin. And what happens? The brother Cain is so angry, he ends up killing his brother Abel. And from the ground, Abel's blood cries out that he has been killed. And so that's why it's important, this last line here. And through his faith, that his trust, though he died, he still speaks. Speaks. 